Hey everybody, welcome to Open Door Philosophy, a podcast where an undergraduate philosophy major and his former high school philosophy teacher discuss a variety of philosophical topics in an understandable way, all towards the purpose of living a good life. I'm one of your hosts, Andrew Graziano. And I'm the other, Derek Parsons. And welcome to episode 31, yay, crossed a big threshold, where we begin a two-part series on philosophy as a way of life rather than abstract theory based on the 20th century philosopher Pierre Hedeau. But before we dive into some practical philosophy, Mr. Parsons, how are you doing? Uh, you know, I'm doing pretty great. I promise the summer is just mere weeks away. Gosh, by the time this airs, I'll have about six days left with students. So mm-hmm. summer's coming in terms of the calendar, as well as the weather. I know you're going to be happy about this, Andrew. As soon as we're done recording, I'm mowing the lawn, <laughs> and today's high is 96 degrees. Yeah, that's going to be miserable. Which makes you happy. That makes me very hot. <laughs> well, that's good. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm I'm staying inside, uh, avoiding this, this hot temperature. I got out of school. Yeah, so I'm going to be out for like two and a half weeks by the time this podcast comes out, which I'm very much looking forward to. It's going to be a busy summer for me, but, you know, it's just another stage of life. We just finished up with our stoicism, so that's uh, something we should take away. Just another uh, another wave on the... The great ocean of time. <laughs> yeah. So would you uh, consider the semester a success? I think it was pretty successful. I put in a lot of time this semester just to studying as opposed to, I don't know what else, but I think like in the past, I, I was involved with a lot of clubs and stuff, but this semester, I, I really wanted to make it a goal to put in a lot of time, produce a lot of good quality stuff. Um, and I think that was great. I don't know, like definitely this semester has been my favorite uh, in college in terms of like what I've been studying, really just enjoyed everything that I was doing. And I don't know if that's a function of me putting in more time to what I was studying or me just being a uh, an older student knowing what courses I want to take and and taking those, but um, all in all, great semester. So just finished up junior year, uh, one more left, which is which is kind of sad actually. I know a lot of people don't like school, but I kind of like it. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. That's great. Well, I'm glad the semester ended well. Sounds like you enjoying school so much as a way of life, but you know, philosophy can also be a way of life, and that's what we're going to talk about today. The last couple of episodes, we've been spending time in the ancient world, and now we're going to spend some time with the 20th century philosopher who also spends all of his time in the ancient (laughs) world. We're just not quite out of the ancient world yet, but now we're getting a 20th century perspective on it. This episode and the following episode, we're going to be focusing on French philosopher Pierre Edo, who published a very influential set of essays that have been put together in a single volume called Philosophy as a Way of Life. And as Andrew and I have said many times on the show, we really would like for philosophy to be something interesting, but also practical to living. And Pierre Adot has a great focus on that. In fact, he's critical of abstract and theoretical philosophy because he posits that 
ancient philosophy was all about how to live, right? So we're going to get into that text today. The essay specifically that we're going to look at is called Spiritual Exercises. And it's about a 30-page essay, and he goes through a number of things that are helpful in terms of living a good life, like a practical roadmap on how to do it. A lot of people ask like, oh yeah, philosophy's cool, dig all the ideas, love the questions, but how do I take all that and like form that into some sort of concrete way of living a good life? We've talked about stoicism the last couple episodes, and there's some really cool ideas in there, but how do we take that and make it into something that is practicable, right? On a, on a daily basis to where it can make a measurable difference in our lives. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. The essay, again, is called Spiritual Exercises. It's from the book called Philosophy as a Way of Life, Pierre Adeau. So in this episode, we're going to essentially unpack what is in that essay. And then in the following episode, we're going to provide commentary and analysis on the content of that essay. I think this idea of philosophy as a way of life is is really something to keep in mind as we're coming out of Stoicism. We mentioned, I think, when we were introducing the topic of Stoicism, I guess this will be five episodes ago or so, this term philosophy as a way of life for the first time, I think, since we had uh, Professor Sadler on the show. And I think I'm fairly confident Pierre Hadot is the person who coined the term, but I think as Mr. Parsons said, thinking about philosophy as a, as a way of life, it's not only really a question about how we can make philosophy applicable, but it's also something too about, I think there's an underlying question that's been, um, I think I even mentioned this in that episode a few weeks ago, but I'd like to talk about it this now too, because I, I've talked to a few people about this recently. I think there's this reaction from uh, philosophers who are looking at philosophy as a practice in the academy and universities, and they're seeing that it's not really being applicable to people's lives. And I think this is kind of important to think of as in the context of kind of where Hado is coming out of. This is kind of a, a concern for these philosophers, especially these philosophers, I think, who are studying like, well, I guess now we'll call it classical philosophy, but uh, ancient philosophy, I think, is what they referred to it then, or, or maybe it's the opposite. But at this time, we're seeing McIntyre, Alistair McIntyre, who I'm a big fan of, who's re also reacting against, um, against this kind of tradition uh, that's emerged in Western universities of philosophy not being very applicable. And I think Pierre Hadot is, is also in that tradition too. And that's really something that's, that's still being uh, argued against today too. I was a farewell lecture two Fridays ago um, from this professor at Rice who was talking about basically this very same thing about how philosophy is important, not as just something that's analyzing power structures or, or something like that, like maybe history might do or something, but as, as something that's actually important to the life of a human. So I don't know if anything, what I just said makes any sense, but I think I think we can view Pierre Hedo as this reaction against philosophy as something that hasn't been applicable for a long time as a TLDR. Yeah, he addresses that near the end of the essay. So I think it'll I think it'll make some sense to everyone. Just a quick bio on Ado. So he was born in 1922 and died in 2010. So uh, he was a contemporary. 
and just passed away not too long ago. He spent most of his career at the College of France. Uh, in 1972, the title of his chair was changed to Theologies <laughs> and Mysticisms of Hellenistic Greek and the End of Antiquity. So if that, that tells you yep, exactly yep, yep, yep. what he's involved in, right? He is, uh, and in 83, he assumed the chair of history of Hellenic and Roman thought. So he's an expert in Platonism, Stoicism, Epicureanism, Aristotelianism, Platonic and Socratic thought, like that big chunk of history from the beginning of philosophy with, with the pre-Socratics all the way up to really the fall of Rome. This is a Doe's wheelhouse. And so uh, he certainly like had contributed to other things, uh, commentaries on Goethe and Nietzsche and Wittgenstein and some other philosophers, but, but ancient philosophy was really his wheelhouse. And that's what spiritual exercises is all about. He takes these ancient schools of philosophy and takes lessons from them and tries to craft out or, or create a, a path, if you will, that people can follow and say like, yes, this is how I can improve my life over time by doing these particular things. So to get into the work, it is titled Spiritual Exercises, which might strike some people as kind of funny, being that we're talking about philosophy. Uh, sometimes we don't put philosophy with the word spiritual. So Andrew, when you hear the, the term spiritual exercise, what kind of comes up in your mind? What do we think it is? If I'm not thinking about Hado, then I'm thinking spiritual exercise is probably something to do with religion. Maybe uh, uh, something that uh, maybe I, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I'm thinking about uh, this trend over rock crystals. Have you heard of that lately? Like uh, <laughs> yes, people, I am aware. people um, they buy like rock crystals, and then they think that if I have like a red rock or something, I'm oversimplifying this for sure. But if I have like a red rock, uh, I'm going to get uh, love or something. But yeah, I, I guess that's what I think of something that's, I don't even really know. It's something that's not like a physical exercise, but something that I don't know. Well, how about, so with your Catholic background, mm. uh, was there anything that you would consider a spiritual exercise? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think the first thing that, that comes up when I'm thinking about it is like, just like confessionals. I think a lot of people who aren't Catholic think of confessionals as kind of this uh, as solely, well, probably informed people who aren't Catholics probably think of confession solely as something that's like a way that Catholics believe they can get rid of sins. But it's also a way for you to uh, talk to the priest about challenges that you're facing, kind of get some advice on them and, and, and how, to, how to do better. Uh, so I guess that's the, the big one that comes to mind for me. What about you? Yeah, when I think of spiritual, I think of things that are associated with like the non-physical. And when I think of that in relation to humans, I think of the aspect of humans that we call being, right? Your beingness, uh, which is your soul or your mind or or that part of you that is that is uniquely you. And that is sort of your spirit. And I think of with spiritual, um, I think it's anything that's kind of associated with improving that part of you. We're not talking about improving your abs or your <laughs> biceps or something like that. We're talking about improving the part of you that is your beingness, right? So in spiritual exercises, think of improving your moral outlook on things, improving your character. And I think, you know, if you want to make a, a religious connection, like you just said, with 
confession. I mean, when you confess to a priest, you, you, you said that you talk about challenges, right? And so it is challenges that help shape our character. And typically, that's a spiritual exercise. Whether we take sort of a religious view of that, or whether we take a more secular view of that, of improving character or something like that, the, the improvement of the beingness of, of a person. So Ado, at the beginning of the essay, lays out what he thinks it means, because he also acknowledges, and this is why I wanted to ask the question, he acknowledges it's kind of an awkward term, but here's his justification for it. He says, because philosophy is involved in the art of living and focuses on the self and the being, it can raise us from the inauthentic to the authentic. And he even uses the term conversion in the phrasing from time to time. It can transform our lives. Uh, and so this makes philosophy, when used in this way, as like a, a way to improve one's life, not abstract theoretical stuff, that this makes philosophy or the doing of philosophy a spiritual exercise. Fado kind of lays out this very simple understanding of what he, he means by spiritual exercises too. So we were just kind of talking about what we think. But I think, I think this is a good way to understand it from Hado, where he says, uh, spiritual exercises are practices which are intended to affect a modification and a transformation in the subjects who practice them. So I think, I think that's mm. a pretty simple, it's kind of broad too, you know. Well, I guess we'll leave the commentary for the next episode, but it, it, I, think, I think it's an intentionally broad definition. Ado, in wanting to lead us towards some exercises that are practical with philosophy, of course, like with all philosophies of life, we have to identify what is the thing that is keeping us from authenticity, right? And so being a classicist, and by the way, Ado will address everything from Stoicism mm -hmm. to Epicureanism to Platonism. If you're not familiar with that, that was uh, a religion that was based off of Platonic ideas ideas of Plato and the idea of the good. But we're also going to talk about Socrates as kind of a figurehead. And all these philosophical schools from the ancient Hellenistic world all kind of agree on the same thing. That is the problem. Now, how they get to the solution is a little bit different for each school, obviously. But the problem is that we are a slave to our worries and our passions. Those are the things that keep us from being uh, living a genuine, authentic life. And so these spiritual exorcisms that he recommends, well, I don't know if he even recommends them. He's really just mm. kind of identifying them. No, I'm going to take that back. I think he does recommend them. But he doesn't recommend one particular school. That these spiritual exercises can help us ascend to some greater uh, peace of mind. Pulling practicality out of a 2,000-plus-year-old exercise is sometimes tough. But I think when Hado is recognizing the roots of these exercises and something that's very human, that's something that still is problematic for us, such as you know worrying about things and uh, uh, worrying over passions and desires and such. When we recognize that root, we have almost a justification not necessarily for believing that these exercises work, but a justification for entertaining these ideas. So we can see these exercises in this journey that we're taking in this podcast 
uh, and in Hado, when you read philosophy as a way of life and this this particular passage of spiritual exercises is as a kind of shopping around, I guess, for for different this is a poor analogy, I guess, but shopping around for medication uh, for helping us kind of improve on a problem that seems almost inherent in our experience as humans. Absolutely. And you know, you talk about the root. Almost all world religions and philosophies identify something very similar to the common mm-hmm. problem. Uh, Buddhism says, you know, our, uh, the thing that keeps us, uh, the thing that causes suffering is desire. In the biblical New Testament, and Jesus tells us to get rid of all of our possessions and follow him. You know, it's money, it's possessions, it's wealth, it's title, it's, you know, and, and that's the same message from the Stoics and from other ancient schools of philosophy as well. So we'll uh, analyze that. I really want to provide some commentary on yeah, that. I know. <laughs> so we'll analyze that in the next episode. But but that's uh, that's the claims that we see across many philosophies and, uh, and, and religions. All right, so let's get practical. So one of the philosophers that Ado references is a fellow of Alexandria. And he provided a, a couple of commentaries on spiritual exercises for philosophy and cobbled those together and come up with a list of what those are. And so I've broken them out into two different categories, one being intellectual and the other being active. So I just want to read them real quick and then we'll discuss them. So the first is intellectual. Underneath those are things such as research, thorough investigation, reading, listening, and meditation. And we'll talk about exactly what you should be reading and listening and all that sort of stuff. And then there's the active part of it. And the active part of it is to pay attention, self-mastery, indifference to indifferent things, and accomplishment of duties. So all of those are action, actionable exercises that you can do. So let's take a look at these for a minute, Andrew. And the first thing that hits me is it's this divide between these this list, and I think you divided it perfectly between intellectual and active. It's really this divide that's prominent in uh, philosophy back then of these virtues, right? It's intellectual virtues and active virtues. And these different ones, the way you split it, the different exercises in each are ways that you kind of cultivate intellectual virtues and active virtues, I think. Well, another thing that I think is interesting too, if I'm looking at this list for intellectual research through investigation, reading, listening, meditation, and then I'm looking at the active side, attention, self-mastery, indifference to indifferent things and accomplishments of duties, I could also think about it like, okay, which one of these is going to be most important or which one of these is going to help me more? And I think that something that we're going to see, although it's probably not prevalent, or it's not not prevalent, it's probably not going to be evident at first, is it's going to be really interesting which uh, branches are going to emphasize different different exercises. Because definitely something to keep in mind is that the prioritization of active virtues versus intellectual virtues and vice versa or the uh, keeping them equal is going to differ across all of these fields that we're going to look at. Yeah, the Epicureans and the Stoics both placed an emphasis on indifference to indifferent things. 
that was important for both of their schools. But of course, they approach it in very different ways. Um, Let me ask you a question real quick before we move on. Mm -hmm. If we're looking at this list of active and intellectual, I'm going to call them categories. I'll call the intellectual category one and then the active category another. Um, So on the surface, are you kind of drawn to uh, one of these over the other, one of these categories over the other? Oh, that's an interesting question. Hmm. I'm probably drawn to the intellectual a little more because, frankly, it takes less effort. <laughs> now, that's funny. It's really funny you say that. And when I say less effort, I mean like it's one thing to think about virtues such as moderation or something, right? But it's another thing to actually do self mastery. Oh boy, that takes some work, you know. And indifference to indifferent things. I mean, it's so fun to theorize about that, right? But man, when it comes to actually, you know breaking your favorite coffee mug. Uh, that's not as fun to deal with as it is to like think about it in sort of a hypothetical abstract way. But I do like attention, right? I do like paying attention to the moment. And that's a very sort of stoic, well, Epicurean as well, uh, no question. But, you know, Ado says like attention is for, in the stoic sense anyway, you know, always to be prepared for the moment, right? Because you never know what uh, situations you're going to encounter and you need to have your virtues really ready at hand to uh, always encounter the moment. But I do think that, you know, the intellectual side of it is incredibly important. And it can be just as difficult as as we'll see as we get later into this essay where he talks about learning to dialogue. You know, when you're dialoguing, uh, you're not just dialoguing with another person. He also says you have to dialogue with yourself. You have to engage in mental combat with yourself when it comes to these spiritual exercises. And even though it's intellectual and we can do that sitting in our armchair, that still should take, if done well, that should take some, uh, should take some work. So don't want to completely dismiss the intellectual side. So like, ah, it's easier. It's all important. And really one feeds off the other, right? Like when we talk about the importance of meditation as an intellectual activity, well, the things you're meditating is on is oftentimes your actions and in relation to what you've read and listened to and thought about. And so they're all pretty uh, interrelated. I don't know. What about you? You had a funny reaction when I said intellectual, or maybe it was my reason, my, my cause for why I chose intellectual. Well, I think the intellectual category is necessary for you to have a good active category right so i think that mm-hmm. you're not going to be able yeah. to accomplish duties and it's really not accomplishment of duties and just in that sense when we say accomplishment of duties it really means accomplishment of duties one accomplishment of duties which are good and uh, you accomplishing your duties well so it's both both of those conditions too so if I want to meet both of those conditions to accomplish my du- my good duties well, I'm going to have to research them. I'm going to have to figure out what makes my duties good or which duties to choose. And then I'm going to figure have to, through investigation, figure out how to do those duties well. And that might uh, encompass some reading and some listening and some meditation on how to solve those duties or how to do those duties well. Mm-hmm. So I think the intellectual category is necessary for the active ones really to be completed well and eh, i think we can kind of see it on the flip side too like 
attention is going to be required for you to do good research and thorough investigation. So I think they're both interconnected. Another reaction that I have, though, is like, okay, a Platonist is going to say very strongly, right? Like, I need to pay a significantly more amount of my attention, which is an active exercise, I suppose, on research and the investigation and reading and listening and meditation than really on these active virtues. Plato's Republic, he says Mm. that uh, uh, for a philosopher to reach eudaimonia, they need to retreat from the um, active life into the contemplative life. Uh, so that's that's kind of why I was laughing, because that you know you know for I uh-huh. think I think for a lot of people, or at least for me, the intellectual exercises sound much more appealing. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And you mentioned reading and and research and thorough investigation, all of that stuff. Uh, that th- there's no escaping that if you really want real improvement, which I think is kind of what you're saying. Like, it's so easy these days to hop on social media and find some quippy little quote from uh you know Nietzsche you know it's like uh oh what's a good Nietzsche inspirational quote you know, become who you are <laughs> you know and you're like oh yes this is my mantra for life and now I'm living it you know but golly you gotta do some you gotta do some reading you gotta have some dialogue with people you gotta have dialogue with yourself you gotta investigate what other great thinkers think you have this vast library of incredible thinkers who came before you and so many people around you that you can draw upon as well, orienting your life towards improvement, improvement from the worry and stress uh, that we create for ourselves. Like that doesn't happen with with cute little one-liners from philosophers. Yeah, no. Or self-help No, that's so people. true. And I think too, if we're thinking about like this intellectual life, really in the context of these Aristotelians and these Platonists and these uh, Stoics, well, maybe Stoics less, but, and these Epicureans and all of these Hellenistic schools, they're really thinking about this intellectual or in the Greek, fancy Greek, theoretikos as a life kind of of science, of something that as we think of science now, it's about inquiry. It's about testing methods. It's about figuring out truths of the world around us. It's about studying biology and physics, something we didn't talk a lot about in the last episode uh, or in the last episodes of Stoicism, but that was something fundamental to being a Stoic sage was a study of physics. And so, mm-hmm. so yeah, this, this theoretical life, theoreticos, this intellectual or contemplative life is one that's filled with study, filled with science, filled with learning. The point is for you as an individual to come to your own particular understanding of what it is to live a good life. That's why there's so many different schools. That's why there's so many different religions, although a lot of those kind of echo the same things. But the approach can be different, Epicureans versus the Stoics, for example. The the point is for you to take all of this knowledge, research, information, everything, and test it out for yourself and come to your own conclusions about that. That's what philosophy is. And that will make your life that you're living even more authentic, which is, according to Ado, a goal of moving away from your worries and from your passions. So let me use some of Ado's own language to identify these practices from Philo of Alexandria. 
So attention, right? So he says in the stoic sense, I already mentioned this, we must always be prepared for the moment. So I already talked about that one. Let's move on to meditation. Meditation, again, that's another one of those words like spiritual. A lot of people probably have uh, associations with that word, which may not necessarily mean exactly what a doe means, but meditation is like paying close attention with your mind to something, right? And so Ado says, meditation is to keep life's events before our eyes, to reflect on the day, to reflect on uh, our actions, our duties, how well we carried those out. He, like many of the Stoics that we've looked at the last couple of weeks, he recommends examining in the morning and the evening. And all of that will help control our inner discourse, that part of ourselves inside of us that is easily swayed by the passions, right? And he says food for meditation. I really like this metaphor of food. He says the food for meditation is what we've been talking about. Research, reading, listening, engaging, right? That is the food for meditation. And he says, uh, and certainly Andrew will enjoy this being an Aristotelian of sorts. Uh, you know, there's a lot of practical exercise. These practical exercises, Ado says, creates habits, right? So habits of that feed into self-mastery and those duties that you carry out in social life by following these exercises, uh, it creates these habits and that helps improve everything overall. Aristotle loved him some habits. Yeah, huh, he, really, he really did. You're completely right. Aristotle loved him some habits. And I think, you know, it kind of, it makes a lot of sense, right? Like these, these exercises that, that we're doing or that Hudo is, I guess, suggesting that we might do, if we practice them enough, it's likely, if not almost certain, that they're going to dictate how you act in daily life. So, I mean, to say that I remember when I was a kid, or when I was younger, because I, I, pro I probably should have done this a lot earlier, but when I was younger, I would always, when I had trash in my room, this is probably a poor example, definitely not what Aristotle meant, but it was like, Every time that I, like my trash rolled up in my room, I would leave it there and then I would put it like in a bag and then I'd put it by my door and then I would just leave it there and it would sit there for like a week. I mean, it was just like paper and pencils and stuff, but still a bad habit, kind of gross, whatever. But then I remember like when I was living at home uh, during the pandemic, I was and spending so much time in my room working on things. I was like, yeah, I cannot live like this anymore. I need to start taking this trash out. So um, I decided that, you know, every time that I would walk past my door and there was trash there, I would pick it up and take it out immediately instead of like waiting for a time that I would feel right. I guess that's a that's an example of a habit. And I guess it's an example of of a good habit. I don't know if that's a virtuous habit or something, but it's just a kind of low stakes habit. If we practice these exercises and kind of make them do it, it's likely going to carry over and uh, help us accomplish things goals that we want well you know cleanliness is next to That's godliness right. so <laughs> i think you're i think you're good man before we go to break just one or two other quick things to mention as far as exercises that we haven't hit yet he mentions this with the epicureans but certainly the stoics had this um, as part of their philosophy as well he recommends to have 
aphorisms at the ready to keep fundamental dogmas at hand, right? Uh, in other words, have sayings that are helpful, philosophical sayings that are helpful to help you master the moment. Both the Stoics and the Epicureans recommend this because our passions very quickly will sway us one way or the other, especially when issues related to moderation and stuff like that. And so have these mantras ready at hand so that you can help remind yourself of of what the purpose is, right? Do you have any off the top of your head, Andrew, that you commonly refer to? Yeah. I mean, I think the one that's probably most that I try to think about the most is like the probably the most basic one that everybody's heard, but it's like the remember that you'll die, Amor Fati quote. I think that's a one that I think about or I try to think about a lot. You 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 know, longtime mm-hmm. listeners will know this very much. So Mr. Parsons and I very much enjoy thinking and talking about death, which sounds kind of creepy. Uh but yeah. <laughs> I think I think that's probably the biggest one. So when you're like, you know, studying or wrapped up in whatever, I don't know, and you think, oh, yeah, I must remember, I, I must remember that someday I will die. That can quickly sort of reorient, reorient oh, your yeah. perspective on whatever that yeah. thing is. You know, another uh, one for I have a couple, um, one, one for me, which will be uh, recognizable to most listeners, I'm sure. Um, and that's Socrates quote on the unexamined mm. life is not worth living. Don't wallow around in ignorance, right? Uh, examine your life. And don't have to be examined like a, a harsh examination or something, but just be aware. Be aware of who you are as an individual and how you fit into the great complexity of, of life. And another one of my favorites is Kierkegaard. <laughs> life can only be understood backwards, but must be lived mm. forwards. And so whenever there's sort of ambiguity in my future, I can't quite see the path, you know, I, I think like, well, like how many times have I done this in my life uh, where decisions, I don't know what the right decision is, but years later I can look back and say like, oh yeah, uh, I guess that, I guess that all turned out okay. That's the sound of money. Fresh printed money, 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 money. Hey Andrew, you know, you, you go to school in an urban part of Houston. Have you ever used the uh, the Houston public yeah, transit? Yeah, uh, I go on the metro train all the time. All the time to get downtown. Uh, what do we call them? We, we say escape the hedges at Rice and uh, enjoy some alone time. Oh, how, how is that public transit experience? I've never ridden the Houston public transit. You know, it's uh, it, it, it has its times and it also has its times. You know, it, it can be a little uh, <laughs> a little odd, but it can also be... Yeah, Houston, Houston transportation is not known for being uh, glamorous, but it, it gets the job done. Yeah, uh, I can't say that uh, outside of like Chicago, and New York and L.A. or something, even L.A. Does L.A. has public? I'm sure it has public transit. Anyway, yeah, America's not very good at public transit. Um, <laughs> but, you know, uh, public transit, though, is a great way for helping you arrive at your destination. But have you ever considered that it could also help you arrive? at ethical decision-making. It can? Sure. All you need is a little imagination, an impossible choice between two alternatives, and of course, a trolley car. And that's where Philippa Foote's trolley service can step in for you. That's right. Need to head home to visit your parents? Going to the coast for a quick vacay? Trying to decide if one person should die or five people should die? Philippa Foote's trolley service has you covered. Mm. 
fashioned after that good old timey look. Philippa Foote's trolley cars are beautifully designed for comfort and aesthetics with railwood seating, brass railing, and a trolley operator so friendly, it's all sure to give you a smile. These same trolley cars, also careen out of control, are able to stop and especially designed to totally crush up to five human bodies tied to the track. But why just ride the trolley on the way to someone's impending death? For the more adventurous patron, Philippa Foot's trolley service offers a special switch operator package, which includes a night's stay at a luxurious hotel and a lovely brunch, followed by the outrageous responsibility of deciding whether or not a trolley should run over one person or five. The choice is totally up to you. You get to throw the switch. Wow, that sounds absolutely disgusting. Thank you, Philippa Foots Trolley Service, for sponsoring our program today. Wow, what a unique opportunity for people to uh, take advantage of. Boy, the world we live in today. And thank you, all of our wonderful, wonderful listeners, for always tuning in and engaging with us and passing on Open Door Philosophy to your friends and including it in your social media. All of that helps just the uptick of uh, where Open Door Philosophy pops up in search results and recommendations for other people. So that is how you can uh, sponsor us by doing all of those things. Thanks so much. And now back to the show. So another big aspect to spiritual exercises with philosophy, Ado mentions learning to dialogue. So that's a very specific thing in philosophy, or at least in ancient philosophy, because so much of ancient philosophy orbits around Plato and his particular style of writing was dialogue, of course, based on his great mentor Socrates, who also exclusively dialogued when it came to philosophy. So Odo says Socrates causes spiritual exercise to emerge in the Western consciousness in the form of dialogue. And this is why it's so powerful. Dialogues put the interlocutor into question. That's a fancy word for the person you're talking with, right? Dialogues put the interlocutor into question. This is its power because it examines consciousness and inner progress. One of the great sayings that come from ancient philosophy is know thyself. And a good way to know yourself is to examine yourself. The unexamined life is not worth living. And so knowing thyself is incredibly important to that process. So it's not only, however, to dialogue with others, but to dialogue with yourself. And this would be the exercise of, of meditation, meditations. But I want Andrew to talk a bit uh, a minute about Socratic dialogues because he has so much experience with it. We've talked about Socrates a little bit, for the, but for those who might be first-time listeners or are unfamiliar with Socrates, Socrates engages in almost, yeah, in, in every dialogue that Socrates is in, except for one that I can think of off the top of my head. He's engaging in a dialogue between two Usually, it's it's two people at a time. Other people can join in the dialogue, but it's just two people at a time. And basically, well, what all Socratic dialogues are trying to do, I think, are two things. First, Socrates is trying to unravel truth. Now, in his earlier dialogues, he's testing truths. In his later ones, he's, he's kind of espousing it. 
But no matter what it is, it's trying to unravel truth. And that dialogue method, because I guess that's what we're going to talk about here and what's important, it's really crucial for it, right? And because basically in a dialogue, in Socrates' dialogue, what he's doing and he, is he's starting, this is the way that I was always explained to it. Socrates starts at point A uh, when he's testing truth. And then he goes, he asks basic questions that stem from first principles. Uh, from A, and then after a while, he's going to end up at something. And if he ends up back at point A, then he has good reason to believe that A is true, or he he has justified himself to an extent to believe that A is probably true. For a lot of the time, though, Socrates will end up at, I'll refer to it as not A. And basically, when he comes to not A, that means that A can't be true because A and not A can't be true at the same time. And so in those instances, Socrates has reason to believe that, you know, to reject A as being true. And you can substitute A for anything you want. But basically, the reason that this is important, I think, for Hudeau is that's what dialogue is about. That's what Socratic dialogue is about. It's testing truths in a way that allow you to justify a belief that you have and determine if it's true or not true. And that's really, you know, that's kind of the powerful thing about it too, right? Like a dialogue is not just an opportunity for someone to prove that someone is right or wrong. It's it's a learning opportunity for both sides of the party. And then in the special case for Plato, and I really think too, when I'm reading Hado, what I think he's intending for the reader to do is that he wants, both in Plato and Hado's case, is that they want the reader to be engaging in the dialogue and this kind of metaphysical dialogue between the reader and the writer. So it's kind of this learning opportunity on all ways. It's kind of this uh, trippy, yeah, it's this trippy kind of dialogue. Um, I pulled a quote from uh, Hado's other really famous essay called What is Ancient Philosophy? where he talks about this kind of dialogue approach, where Hado writes, the philosophy teacher's discourse in this kind of dialogue uh, could be presented in such the way that the disciple as an auditor, reader, or interlocutor could make spiritual progress and transform himself within. So a dialogue is a spiritual exercise in itself. Yeah, absolutely. And I really like the point you made about the fact that it's not, uh, it, this isn't a debate. You're not trying to win. You're not trying to prove something. Doe says with a Socratic dialogue, we, we must base our conversation and our replies on the particular knowledge that our interlocutor admits that they know, right? That's what Socrates was so interested in. You know, what, what is it that you know? It's not an opportunity to preach. It's not an opportunity to convert. Now, if conversion happens via the dialogue, then then that's great. But it's not an opportunity to prophesize to the other person and try to convert them to your side. And so in that way, uh, a bit cliched, Odo does not use this language, but it's more so about the journey than it is about the uh, the destination, right? It's not necessarily about the conclusion that the interlocutors arrive at via the dis- uh, the dialogue, but it's the dialogue itself. The dialogue itself is the practice. It is the thing, it is the tool to which you use in order to discern 
truth about all kinds of things. And the more you use it, the more you utilize it, uh, the more precise and sharper it becomes. Yep, 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 yep. And I guess the last thing to say about it is it also means like you're also dialoguing with yourself too. Like dialogue is not exclusively between two people. You are also through spiritual exercise using that same dialogue process to be your own interlocutor with uh, when at the end of the day or at the beginning of the day, it says we must reflect on these things through meditation, right? That is also a type of dialogue. And he even uses the language, we must do battle with ourselves, right? Don't let ourselves off the hook. And so, so dialogue is between two people, but also dialogue is, is with yourself. So he calls it a spiritual practice because uh, it can lead a person to conversion of some sort based on their conclusions of those dialogues. And also, if we go get really uh, platonic about this, Andrew will love this language, because it is pure thought. It can turn our soul from the sensible world and allows one to convert itself towards the good. And that's capital G. Um, no, I mean, I would, I think to really get the most out of it, just like to, to really, I think this is like such a fundamental idea. That's so crucial to Hado and really a lot of this subcategory of philosophy is philosophy of a way of life is this idea. So it's, it, I think it's crucial to understand it. So I'm, I'm really glad we're taking time to, to talk about it. Yeah, the next section in the essay is called Learning to Die. Andrew has already mentioned it in this episode. We love yep. talking about death. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, learning to die gives us perspective and allows us serenity in the misfortune, right? But hey, a lot of that is sort of, again, orbits around Socrates. So Socrates, in a way, was a martyr for the philosophical schools um, because he does die for what he believes in. So Andrew, very briefly, for listeners who might not be aware of this particular story, could you run us very quickly through why the death of Socrates is so important? Socrates was indicted by this guy, probably put up by a, a bunch of other people, basically for uh, for two reasons. But base, the basic reason is that they thought Socrates was corrupting. Um, and he was kind of probably very annoying. So a lot of people probably didn't like him. When they indicted him, they didn't necessarily want him to die. Uh, they wanted to probably just sue him in the sense of get some money, exile him most likely, uh, and just kind of kick him out of Athens. Um, Socrates kind of refused the way that the jury or the way that the sentencing process worked. Socrates basically chose death instead of exile. He basically had the option. We don't need to go in that t today, but he basically chose death instead of exile and abandonment from philosophy. And he also had the opportunity to escape uh, multiple times, but he chose to stay, ba basically thinking that was the just thing to do. And he died. He died in prison uh, after drinking hemlock, which was the traditional execution. So Ado says, Socrates exposed himself to death for the sake of virtue, which is why he's considered such a martyr. I mean, those Greeks, they're, they probably like opened the cell door and they're like, Socrates, please, like you can walk out of here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, That's basically uh, but no, what they he say, yeah. 
Yeah, he refused. You know, he said, you've sentenced me. And, and so Ado says he preferred to die rather than renounce the demands of his conscience, thus preferring the good above his own being and thought and conscience above the life of his body. So Socrates becomes a real martyr for the philosophical schools that come after him. And this is why so many of, of course, his dialogues are fantastic. And his whole way of thinking shapes philosophy for hundreds, if not thousands of years. But the death and the way he he went about it, of course, inspires many schools to him. And this is why, essentially, every school that comes springs up after him uh, attempts to uh, attach themselves to Socrates as he's the founder of their school. You know, uh, he's that pivotal. But outside of that, uh, Ado talks about again, sort of the memento mori, the idea that we will die and. You know, we don't have to obsess over that, but we also have to be, it can help us shape our lives. Uh, in the Phaedo, which we covered in a previous episode, Socrates says to Simeon, uh, he says, it's a fact that those who go about philosophizing correctly are in training for death, and that to them, all men, death is least alarming. So part of this is to uh, not be scared of dying and also allowing uh, the eventual death to help place your life in context. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I have much more to add. I think we've done, I, we've done a lot of episodes about death now that I'm thinking about it. I'm, I think we've done, if I'm counting the past four stoic ones and then our two on death. I think that's six episodes at least. Um, so if you're more, Wait, have we done an that, episode on just topic, on death? Yeah, we've done. Uh, uh, Did we? <laughs> we've, we, we've done. Two, we've done two episodes just on death, I think. But yeah, I think we've done a lot of episodes. So if you're interested in death, check those out. Uh, the only thing I have to say, other th- other than that, is I'm very glad Hado doesn't limit this idea of uh, philosophers thinking about how to die just to Plato. It's kind of been this theme in philosophy ever since. He mentions Heidegger. Uh, says he, I think Hedo says that Heidegger is obsessed in his philosophy to just considering death. And I think that's true. It's like philosophers have just been obsessed with death <laughs> since Plato. Or since Socrates died. Um, I'm, when, when we get to this episode next time, uh, next time this comes out, um, I'm going to raise some problems because I would, wasn't a huge fan of this section with Hado, but I respect To throw out a few more quotes that sort of reinforce everything we've been talking about, uh, one that Ado mentions is from Horace. Believe that each day that has dawned will be your last, then you will receive with each unexpected hour with gratitude. But at the very, it might be the very last line. I can't remember, but but very near the end of this particular section of the essay, uh, Ado says this, and I thought it was a nice quote. From the perspective of pure thought, things which are human, all too human, seem awfully puny uh, in the face <laughs> of death, of course. So it's a great, anyway, great. Uh, yeah, we have talked about death a lot with previous episodes, so we won't belabor the point anymore, but Ado does include it as a very significant part of spiritual exercises. So the final section that Hado brings in Philosophy as a Way of Life is talking about learning how to read. 
And when I first read this passage, I was so confused. I can see his other two practices pretty clearly, learning to dialogue, learning to die. Both are kind of important. Both have been talked about. I've never seen learning to read before. But when I kind of got into the passage, it made a little bit more sense. There's this uh, really interesting passage where he talks about, and I think he's kind of justifying this, when he's re-looking kind of at the end of this chapter, where he's kind of looking at spiritual exercises again, and he says, thus all spiritual exercises are fundamentally a return to the self, in which the self is liberated from the state of alienation and to which it has been plunged by worries, passions, and desires. And then a little bit later, he says, with these exercises, we should be able to attain wisdom, that is, to a state of complete liberation from the passions, utter lucidly, knowledge of ourselves and the world. And then I think when I was reading that, it, it kind of clicked, because that's kind of what reading is to, you know, it is a way for us to learn why it's not helpful to worry about our worries, our passions, our desires. But I think as as we'll talk about in a second, there are different ways you can read. And reading in this way that Hado kind of wants us to is is important and I think can change the way we think about um, reading a text of philosophy so that it can be a spiritual exercise for us. Yeah, in the section he goes through a couple of different um, schools that we've mentioned throughout the episode, Platonism, Stoicism, Epicureanism, and talks about how reading is important for each of those and in what particular way. But all of them always returns to this idea of like, you know, a spiritual exercise helps us renounce the false values of wealth, honors, pleasures, and turns us towards the values of virtue, contemplation, and, and a simple lifestyle, a simple happiness of existing. You may not know it, but all those schools were just echoed in that one sentence. And reading is an important way to do that. And you for to make like a superficial connection to say traditional religion, every religion has its significant texts that are important for the growth of the individual spiritually. So whether that's the Bible or whether that's the many uh, other texts from saints that have been written or in the Buddhist tradition, so many of the sutras that have been written, the Taoist tradition, so many other Taoist sages that came after Lao Tzu, like there's all these significant texts that people can read in those faiths to help them grow in that faith. And with uh, with philosophy as a way of life, Ado is saying the same thing about philosophical texts, that reading those is fundamentally important to the growth of the individual uh, in a philosophical approach, at least in the uh, classical style to living. And he does say, he does, he does get on his soapbox for a minute. Um, and he does say, you know, we, we have to remember when we're reading these ancient texts that they were not meant for abstract theoretical philosophy. Uh, he goes into, yeah, he goes into a short little section where he talks about, you know, this is uh, philosophy became that because of the Middle Ages and then the modern philosoph philosophical era. And he says, really, only until the 20th century has it returned to some sort of application to life. But but the ancients wrote that philosophy to be lived out from like evidential material, the dialogues they're having, all those things, and and not really meant for it to be analyzed as, as abstract theoretical philosophy. Yeah, definitely. Hado, and I think this is interesting too, because it's kind of building upon the last section is 
a really important part of learning to read is learning to recognize a text as a dialogue ex- it itself, even mm. if it's not intended to be one. So uh, the example that he uses is this differentiation between Plato and Aristotle, where Plato's texts are clearly, for the most part, dialogues, where Aristotle's, if you've ever read one, they're very, very much a lecture. We've talked about that when we've talked about Aristotle. They're, it's a treatise, um, and some scholars have um, reported that what we have, the texts that we have, are lecture notes. And Hadot kind of points this out. He says that basically when we're reading Aristotle, and I think this is just true from someone who reads Aristotle a lot, it's like there are inconsistencies in Aristotle's work in each dialogue and especially from one dialogue to another. And so Hadot's kind of positing here, and I'm not sure I necessarily agree with it, but I think it's a definitely an argument for consideration is that Aristotle's kind of realizing this and or not realizing this, but intentionally is doing so to cause dialogue among mm. his students, his listeners, and even readers too. And when I read this, it really made me think of the conversation that we were having a few weeks ago with Jack Symes from the Pan Psychast, where Mr. Parsons, I and Jack were discussing how philosophy is kind of taught in a way now where you're not supposed to be engaging with the dialogue or with the text or, or whatever. It's meant to be something that you're learning directly from and not engaging with it at all. And, and we were all kind of critiquing that. So Mr. Parsons, is there any merit in this idea uh, when we're, how, how we are learning, how we should learn to read a philosophical text as a kind of dialogue? Oh, absolutely. I always think when I'm reading philosophy or even fiction for that matter, uh, the, the author has something to say to me. Now, the author doesn't know me. But the author is writing about something that is to be accepted in a sort of universal way, therefore uh, accepted by me and and spoken to me. Even when I think of Marcus Aurelius's meditations, which was his journal entries, he wasn't really writing those for anybody. But without a doubt, like I feel like Marcus Aurelius is talking to me when I read those, and that I should be I should be responsive to that. Or when you read uh, Platonus and his you know, ecstatic pronouncements about the Platonist uh, views of the universe and everything, which are just entirely beautiful. You know, I should respond to that uh, in a way. So reading is not passive. You know, I think maybe we have this sort of stereotypical idea of like, oh, crawling up in our armchair with a cup of tea and, you know, we're just going to have a relaxing afternoon reading. And certainly you can do that, of course. But no, reading is is dialogue. You should be dialoguing back and forth with you and the author. I once heard a person say, like, you know, who are some of your closest friends? And they're like, well, it's the authors I read. I don't know them. They've been dead for 2,000 years. Um, <laughs> but I've engaged with them so Creepy. much. I know, right? <laughs> but, but I've engaged with them so much that, like, I, I almost feel like I know them and that we've had these conversations about their thoughts. I really like that distinction you were making, and I know I know this episode's running long, but I think there there is that distinction between passive and active reading. I always bring this up in these episodes, and so right here is probably a good time to explain what I mean when I say this, but I always talk about how when I first read Republic, the first work of philosophy that I ever read, I didn't understand a thing. <laughs> and that's, I think, a large part because I was reading it passively. 
And I don't think I understood it the second or the third time I read it either. And I don't think I still understand it now. It's always about trying to be more active with these texts because they're not easy. It's not easy to read and understand something like this. It's not meant to be easy. It's, a, it's an exercise. Reading mm-hmm. is an exercise. And just like any exercise, you're going to get out what you put in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to go back to the metaphor, exercise, if it's going to be beneficial to you, it's, it's going to be something you do over a long period of time. And it's not going to be easy. Uh, none of it's going to be easy. You're not going to like it. <laughs> well, you'll no, like it. No. Uh, well, you'll like it. But it'll be hard, right? Like doing all the workout, going for the long runs, uh, going for the long swims, all those things. You do them over and over week after week. And it's a bit of a grind. But also, you know, the, the grind produces good fruit. When I think I understand something, I've always talked about this on this episode, this podcast too, But it's like, whenever I understand something, it's usually because I've written an essay about it. Or when I think I understand something, I'll say. And that's just because I think I spend, you know, when I write an essay for school, I'm spending 20 or 30 hours on two lines. Hmm. And I still think like if I go back and read something that I wrote last semester where I did spend 20 or 30 hours on two lines, I still think, what the heck am I even talking about? That's completely wrong. (laughs) <laughs> uh, but these authors, they're putting significant time into each word that they're picking, usually. And there's complex ideas. And if you're not going to put in the time, you're not going to get out what they really want. Well, the thing I'll end this episode with is the what Ado says near the end of this essay, which he talks about old truths. So he's talking about uh, all these different schools of philosophy and, and their different viewpoints. He says... And this goes back to the idea that philosophy must be lived. He says, and I'm paraphrasing, for philosophical meaning to be understood, these old truths must be lived and constantly re-experienced. Each generation must take up from scratch the task of learning to read and reread these old truths. So even though these famous works, Andrew mentioned the Republic, man, like, so many people's entry book to philosophy, thousands of years old, has been studied exhaustively, but it's up to you, the next person, the next generation, to take that 2,000-year-old uh, work of philosophy and learn from it and reread those old truths and, and doing something for it, re-experiencing it in your way. Not truths for all times, but truths for today. All right, everybody, that's going to be it for today's episode on the first part of a two-episode series on Pierre Hedo's philosophy as a way of life. Thank you so much for listening. Oh, yeah, we absolutely have such a great time doing this, and it's such a great time when you guys interact with us as well. You can find us on so many of our uh, social medias out there. Twitter, Instagram, Instagram, yes, Instagram. We have a website, opendoorphilosophy.com. You can email us at opendoorphilosophy at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts, your comments on the episode, some of the ideas that are in it. We'd love to hear some ideas for future episodes, suggestions you have, any of that kind of stuff. Uh, Hit us up at those places. We'd also like to thank Kevin McLeod for the use of his free music in the episode um, at the beginning and the ending still thinking it's very groovy so thank you for letting us use that absolutely 100 and uh 
Is that it? That's it, right? I think that's all. I think that's all. Gosh, everyone, have a great week, uh, and we'll see you next time. Remember, when your life is in need of some philosophy, the door is always open. Bye. Bye.